0: so glad that you're here in the bulletin real quickly i remind you that next saturday brianna lee will be saying i do to mr nicholas casey and uh, at 1 30 and so you're invited to be a part of that but they do need to know that you're coming rvsvp there's two phone numbers for you to call right there and uh, they appreciate knowing ahead of time Uh, mary martha meeting tomorrow followed by a bridal shower for Brianna lee right got that right okay then next monday will be the fish distribution and i think it'll be our last one for a couple of months if i remember right and november's the next one so um, also in the bulletin this morning um one of our sister churches in southern oregon is hosting a women's conference for the ladies in their church and in their area. and They've invited you to be a part of that. If you'd like that, there's a flyer take note of all that information. That's coming up in the first week of October. And uh, today's a picnic. Across the Rainier Bridge, up the hill, turn left at the top of the hill and go past the cemetery and go through the four corners. Go to the next driveway and take a right, take a right, and you'll find us next to the cabin. And uh, I think it's section B5 is the um, other, other place that we've rented. How do you know if you're a Christian? Maybe more important is how does someone else know that you're a Christian? What does an authentic disciple of Jesus Christ look like. That's what we've been talking about the last two or three weeks as we are going slowly through John's letter to the churches in Asia Minor at the close of the the first century AD. Three weeks ago, I pointed out that in this message that John wrote to counter the false teaching that was infiltrating the churches, that there are at least three tests regarding the authenticity of our conversion to Christianity we said, number one, there's the doctrinal test. The doctrinal test, what is it that you believe? What do you believe? It is very important what you believe. What you believe. The ethical test is how do you live? How do you live? What do you believe and how do you live? Now there are people who tell you it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. I have a Greek word for you. That's baloney. You can be as sincere as the day is long and be absolutely wrong. It is important what you believe. And that's why John is writing this letter. And then the relational test. The test we're going to talk about today is, who do you love? Who do you love? What do you believe? How do you live? And who do you love? We have noted that as John writes this message, that he writes in a circular manner. And by that, I mean he keeps coming back to his main points, over and over again. And every time he does, we just kind of build on what he said in the beginning, and it compounds in our mind. You know, it's by repetition that you learn A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, whatever the rest of them are. You have to sing it in order to do it. By repetition. By repetition. But he goes in deeper, each time he comes around. Over the past two weeks in the message that we titled The Authentic Christianity, An authentic Christian, number one, knows who Christ is. Knows who Christ is. He is the very Son of God. He is God the Creator, but he became God in the flesh. And that was what the Gnostics were trying to, or the people who began this Gnostic heresy, they were trying to say that the man born Jesus was not the Son of God. John said he was the Son of God. He is the Son of God. He will always be the Son of God, but he did become flesh. Number two, authentic Christians trust what Christ did. They trust what Christ did. My salvation is not based upon my good works. My salvation is based upon the fact that Jesus paid it all for my sake, for your sake. He was the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. We trust in that. We do good works because of that. We don't do good works to appropriate that. Number three, an authentic Christian does what Christ commands. We talked about that last week, and we'll talk about it again probably next week. He does what Christ commands. If you've missed any of those messages, I've got good news for you. They're on the website or they're on the app. And you can pull them up and you can watch them or you can listen to the MP3 file and catch up and be plugged into where we're at as we're going through 1 John. And we are now in chapter 2. Today, we are going to jump into verse 7, where we're going to see another sign of the authenticity of our faith in Jesus as our Savior. As I said a moment ago, we are saved by faith, grace through faith. It's not our works. However, our lifestyle will be an indicator, we've been born again, it'll be an indicator that Jesus is alive and well, and he lives in us. And then we come to the third thing, the third test. So I'm going to read to you, beginning with verse 7 through verse 14. Behold, or beloved. Beloved. You ever have problems with your bifocals? Beloved. I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. That old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him as from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. John makes some very important statements, theological statements about God in the message of 1 John. And we noted in the first chapter that Incredible statement, three words, God is light. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. No, not any. He declared in chapter 1, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Well, here in chapter 2, we circle back, and now we're talking about the light again. And I want to take a few moments to unpack Part of this, what I've just read, we won't get to verse 12 because I'm planning on having to quit earlier in the second service to go to the picnic. And so it might be shorter. I'm not guaranteeing that though. Number one, the light shines in God's law. The light shines in God's law. He said in verse seven, I'm writing you, no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. Now I realize there's more than one way perhaps to interpret what John is speaking about when he talks about the old commandment and the beginning. Is he talking about the beginning of the gospel as preached by Jesus himself? Perhaps. Is he talking about the beginning when each individual received Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior? Perhaps. Or is he talking about the law that God gave to Moses for the people of Israel to live by centuries before previous to that? And that's the way that I choose to look at this passage today. The light shines in God's law. The light of God's love is shining in God's law. You see, letter A, the law itself is an expression of God's love for people. The law itself is an expression of God's love for people. As people who've come to know Jesus Christ by faith, through grace, I fear that sometimes we have the wrong concept of the Old Testament law. We look at the five books first five books, the Torah, and we look at them as being something harsh because of the fact no one can keep all of those laws perfectly. We all fall short in our humanity. And while it is true that Paul wrote us in Romans, we learned that that law exposes our sin, that exposing of our sin is part of God's love for us. It's his love that exposes it, the fact that I need a Savior. It's his love that exposes the fact that I need to find a way of salvation and he's going to provide it. The law of God does not inhibit, it enables. The law of God does not inhibit, it enables. Now I know that those of us who grew up in a Pentecostal church can't believe that because of the way things were preached about what you wear and what you don't wear no makeup no jewelry ladies don't wear men's pants on and on it went You don't smoke. You don't chew. You don't go with girls who do. You don't go to movies. You don't do this. You don't do that. You don't do this. You don't do that. I remember sharing my faith with two brothers on a school bus on the way to a baseball game one afternoon. I come down to the final thing and so are you interested in giving your life to Christ like I've given my life to Christ and their thing is no there's too many things I want to do their concept was God's law is all these things you shall not do you shall not do you shall not do well why did he tell us not to do those things it was to save us from all kinds of negative consequences it was to bring us life Better see, here's the answer to that. The Torah, or God's law, is his loving instruction telling us how to live our lives for maximum fulfillment. He's trying to teach us how to live our life for maximum fulfillment. To walk in surrender to him, to follow his will, I mean, what was the promise to the Israelites? If you'll follow me, I'll take you to the promised land where it flows with milk and honey, and I will give you that land if you'll just obey my words. Now, what can be bad about that? But they got sidetracked along the way. The psalmist wrote under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the law of the Lord is perfect. It's perfect. It's a place where we see the light of the Father revealed, the love of the Father revealed. And the command to love God and to love people comes from God's law. Love is not a New Testament revelation. Love has always been God's nature. When did God decide that he was going to send a Savior into the world? The Bible said before the foundation of the world, the plan of salvation was set out. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. In our modern day thinking, the concept of true love has been grossly misunderstood. There is a large portion of our so-called enlightened culture that be- believes that love means you get to do whatever you want to do. God's love comes with parameters. Parameters that reflect his nature, his character. Later on, we're going to learn in John, we've already talked about it several times, we're going to learn though, but he's going to say God is love. Not God loves, God has love, but God is love. That's who he is and what he is forever. God is love. And the original command, the old command, starts in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then they added to that Leviticus 19, verse 18, and part of that verse, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. Jesus repeated those words when a lawyer... An expert in the Old Testament law said, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? In Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Everything in the Old Testament is grounded and founded upon love God, love people. Love God, love your neighbor. In case you didn't get it, when you get to Galatians chapter 5, verse 14, the Apostle Paul repeats it one more time. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The light shines in God's law. John goes on to say that the light shines in Jesus and his followers by the love expressed through them. The light shines in Jesus and his followers by love. Verse 8 said this, At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him, and in don't glaze over that don't skip over that it's true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining John says there's this paradox the command to love is old but at the same time it's new but i I don't want you to go by this too fast. What's true in him is true in you. The darkness is passing. The true light is already shining in him and in us. So what is it that makes the old commandment new? Well, Jesus said in John 13, a new command I give you. But first of all, letter A, Jesus is the only one in history to live out the command to love always. He's the only one who did it perfectly. We all have moments when we love somebody. But we all have moments when we do not choose to love somebody. But Jesus lived in the power of love perfectly. As a man dependent upon God, he lived in obedience to the Father. Jesus declared no greater love has anyone than this than he would lay down his life for his brother. He didn't lay down his life just for his brother. He laid down his life for sinners, for his enemies. God said we were his enemies before we came to Christ. Letter B, In Jesus, love became new in the extent to which it reached. His love became new in the extent to which it reached. In Jesus' day, every Jew knew the command to love God with all their heart and their neighbor. It was part of the Shema that they they recited every morning and every night. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. They said it every day. They knew that. But, for the most part, to them, that only meant you love your friends and your family. For the most part, Jews did not love sinners. Remember, how they accused Jesus, you eat with sinners and tax collectors. They believed sinners were created by God to be cast into hell. They did not love Gentiles. They believed Gentiles were also for the fire. Also for the fire. You, I, I spoke about that lawyer who came to Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus gave him those two, and love your neighbors yourself. And, and uh, the lawyer said, you did, you did well. But trying to justify himself, so then who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? And you remember Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan, how the Samaritan man helps out the Jewish man, which would have just been flabbergasting to these people. But it was the answer. It was the answer. Jesus, when he came, He was known as a friend of sinners. He spoke to women. He loved Gentiles. And we read in verse 2 of chapter 2, he became the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Among his last words that he spoke before he ascended back into heaven after the resurrection, you remember what that was? Go make disciples of all ethnic groups, all nations, all ethnic groups. He said, you will receive power to be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Letter C, in Jesus, love became new in the lengths to which it would go. In Jesus, the love became new in the lengths to which it It would go. Think about this. Nothing that anyone could do to Jesus could turn his love to hate. I want to repeat that, and I want you to think about it. Nothing that anyone could do to Jesus could turn his love to hate. Sometimes we don't say we hate somebody, but sometimes we say they've gone, that's, that's it, I'm done, I can't take it, I'm done with that, we, wipe, we just write them off. Jesus never came to that point. There is that moment when he's in the temple and his anger is to the point that he cast out all the money changers and the merchants and you say, he must have hated them. I don't think he hated them. Because you remember what happened when he was coming in the donkey before that day, the Palm Sunday? And it said he began to weep. Oh, Jerusalem. And the word, the weep there, he shudders, his body shivers with the sobbing. We sent the prophets and you killed them. If you knew, if you knew what was coming, because Jesus knew that there was coming a day that that city would be totally annihilated, leveled to the ground, thousands of them would die, terrible death and great famine, or by torture, because they rejected him as the Messiah. He didn't hate them. He loved them he loved them. On the cross having been tortured and beaten beyond recognition Isaiah said after they beat him you won't be able to recognize his face unjustly they beat him for claiming to be who he was the son of God He had the power to be able to call 12 legions of angels, he said. And wipe them out. But what did he say instead? Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Father, forgive them. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the extent to which the love of Jesus goes. Love is an entirely new thing in Jesus. Letter D, in Jesus, love is made new in the degree to which it is realized. To the degree to which it is realized. Which is true in him and in you. I keep coming back to that because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The word I want to focus on for a moment is the word true. The true light. The genuine light. The real love. Jesus modeled perfect love. And his command is to love as he loved by the power of the Holy Spirit. Believers are now empowered to love as Jesus loved. Jesus would not have given us that command if he did not give to us the power to fulfill it. Not in your own strength, but the Holy Spirit who lives in you. You are empowered to love as Jesus loved. I keep referring to that new commandment. I want you to see it again, John thirteen thirty four. A new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You're also to love one another. Before I read the next verse, I wanna I want to read a quote from Francis Schaeffer, a American theologian, a pastor, a man who started a, a ministry and in Scotland, I believe it was, it was his wife that lasted for many years. He lived from 1912 to 1984. And wrote several books that were popular back in the 1960s and 70s. He wrote this, the church is to be a loving church in a dying culture. How then is the dying culture to consider us? Jesus says, by this all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one to another. In the midst of the world, in the midst of our present culture, Jesus is giving a right to the world. Upon his authority, he gives the world the right to judge whether you and I are born-again Christians on the basis of our observable love toward all Christians." I want that to sink in just a minute. That's one of those thoughts we'd like to dismiss quickly. It's frightening when you think about the ramifications. Look at the verse. By this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Schaefer said, the way he reads it, God was giving the world the right to judge us according to how we love one another. If somebody approaches us and says, I don't think you're a Christian because I see the way you'd look at that other Christian. You talk about that other Christian. The First thing we need to do is, Lord, search my heart, is what they're saying true. And if what they're saying is true, we need to repent and ask Jesus Christ to wash us with his blood and make a decision to love. Oh, by the way, it's not in my notes anywhere, but love is not a feeling. It's a decision. It's a choice. It's an action. Everybody is still awake, say amen. Amen. <laughs> Number three, love is a way of life. Love is a way of life reading verses 9, 10, and 11. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. We're reminded that our actions must be consistent with our profession of faith. My actions must be consistent with my profession of faith. If I'm a believer, one of the actions I must have is I must love you and you must love me. This is the fifth time since the beginning of chapter 1, and we're only partway through chapter 2, the fifth time that he points out the inconsistencies of saying one thing and doing another. You can go back to the verse 6, 8, and 10 of chapter 1, if we say, if we say, if we say, chapter 2, it's verses 4 and verses 9. I'm reminding you that he's writing to a group of people to counter the teaching of those Forerunners of the Gnostic heresy, that as long as you know the right thing, it does not matter what you do. But he makes it perfectly clear, that's not the true gospel. That's not the authentic follower of Jesus Christ. If I say that I'm in fellowship with the Father, and I hate any one of you, or the brother in the church right down the street, or down the street that way, or down the... There's about a hundred churches here in town. If I hate any one of them, I'm deceived. I'm in the darkness. It says I'm not an authentic follower of Jesus Christ. B, love and hate are incompatible when it comes to my choice of how I'm going to interact with people especially to the body of Christ. Love and hate are incompatible. There is a license to hate that is given to us from the Scripture. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. I put it in parentheses, I think, in your notes. Let love be genuine. Abhor, the NIV says, hate what is evil. And I put in italics, what is evil? It didn't say, who is evil? Hate what is evil? You can hate the devil who's blinded people to the truth and righteousness, but love the people of God sincerely. And by the way, who am I to hate somebody that God loves? I probably should have put that in your notes for you to think about. Who am I to hate somebody that God loves? Who am I to hate somebody that Jesus died for? You know, okay? Love for one another is an evidence of knowing God. Love for one another is an evidence of knowing God. It's one thing to say I love others, but it's demonstrated in their actions. I've had my kids say, I love you, and I've said to them, do you really? Do you really love me? The Bible says if you love Jesus, you keep his commandments. Love is expressed by spending time with people. Love is expressed by acts of service for someone with no expectation of reciprocation. Over the centuries, there have been groups of people and there have been individuals who in the name of piety, in the name of being set aside for God, they have isolated themselves from other people, Christians included, lest they be tempted, lest they be doled by somebody who is less spiritual than they. In their pursuit of holiness, they ignore the supreme command of God to love God and to love your neighbor. Jesus put them right there together. The second is like it. The greatest commandment, the second is like it. That means it's a great commandment. Love your neighbor. We learn to love in the context of Christian community. We learn to love in the context of Christian community. Now you might sit in your living room and keep the doors closed and never go outside and say, I love everybody. That's because you've never been bumped by anybody. You've never smelled anybody that smelled bad. You've never heard things that you shouldn't hear from somebody. It's in the context of the community that we learn how to love. In the context of messy humanity, that's where we're sanctified. We learn to love in the context of personality differences. Sometimes God brings somebody alongside of you with personalities so opposite yours because God wants to chip something off of your personality and make you more lovable and more loving. It's in the context of different tastes in terms of what we wear, wear, what we eat, what we drink, what music we like or don't like, that we learn to love each other. It'll be interesting at the picnic today to watch what you like to eat and what you don't like to eat. But that's not what's going to separate us. That's not what makes us one. What makes us one is we're the body of Christ. One of the traps for the church in America that I see in light of the context of the philosophy of today of our culture is to focus on ourselves, to find myself, to work on cultivating my character, preserving my identity, my virtue. Beware of the temptation to become self. Centered beware of the temptation to become self-centered. and if you think there's no temptation to be self-centered, you must not see any TV or listen to any radio or any internet because there is ad after ad after ad to tell you that you're worth it. You deserve it. It's all about you. There's this fine line to walk. When it comes to the topic of my self image, the scripture says to love your neighbor as yourself. There needs to be a certain amount of self respect and self love. But it's not very far from being my getting a proper self image to come to a place of self love. The greatest enemy to real love is self love. And by self love, I'm talking about being narcissistic being all about me. The root of hatred is self-love. I'm not telling you to think lowly of yourself. I'm not telling you. Here's what I'm telling you. Because Jesus loves me. Amen? Because Jesus accepts me. I don't think about me. I think about others. You say, is that biblical? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. Empty himself, became a servant. He said, I didn't come to be to serve, I came to serve. So by my, my identities and the fact I'm born again by the love of Jesus Christ, the power of Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ, He accepts me, He loves me. That's good enough. And so now, Lord help me. To love people like you love people. That's walking in the light. That's fulfilling the love of Christ. There are so many people that say I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I've asked him to be my Savior. But I don't believe in the organized church. I don't need the church. Jesus and me, we got our own thing going. John says you're walking in the dark. You're deceiving yourself. In my research this week, on the numerous commentaries and preachers that I look at, novelist, essayist, and farmer Wendell Berry has a unique image for perils of individualism. As he was walking with his friend Wes Jackson, they observed a plot of Maximilian sunflowers, a nearly 10-foot-tall plant native to the Midwest. Wes Jackson pointed to one particular plant that was growing alone, disconnected from the community of the other sunflowers. Wendell Berry observed that although this solo, individualistic plant had grown very tall, it was clearly not very healthy. The blossoms were thick and heavy, so heavy the branches were starting to strain and break under the weight. Berry noted that in one sense the plant had succeeded as a solo plant. After all, it was growing, it was unusually tall. But unfortunately, it had completely failed in its intended purpose as a maximum million sunflower. These plants only thrive and give life as they grow in community, not in isolation. He concluded, We could say that achieving success solely as an individual was a plant's failure. It had failed because it lived outside an important part of its definition, which consists of individuality and its community. A part of its healthy potential lay in its community, not just itself. For Wendell Berry, people today are often lonely and isolated because we've lost a simple biblical truth. True health, spiritually, emotionally, and physically is found in community. Health spiritually, emotionally, and physically is found in community. To speak of a health of an isolated individual is a contradiction in terms. Robert Kendlish, over a century ago, said this. This is not me. This is Robert Kendlish, okay? A selfish religionist is sure to become either morbid or stupid. A selfish religionist is sure to become either morbid or stupid. And many quotes of this, and I gave you this quote, it is by sympathy and the brotherhood that the fire of personal Christianity is fanned. It is by sympathy and brotherhood that the fire of personal Christianity is fanned. Verse 10 says, Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. There's no hidden snare, there's no trap, there's no stumbling block. No uneven even sidewalk to trip someone else. Verse 11 indicates the person who has hatred in his heart towards someone is walking in the dark and doesn't even know it. They have been deceived by the master deceiver. In my opinion, there's an epidemic of people who call themselves Christians, who feel like they have a superior understanding of love because they've been wounded by someone in the church and so because of their church hurt they've isolated themselves from the church and they feel justified. They've missed the point. Love is perfected in those moments when we bump into each other, whether it be intentional or unintentional. Jesus said, "You can. everybody can love people who love you. I mean, he said, "Take. you need to love your enemies. Hopefully, the people in the church aren't your enemies, but if they are, you still love them. Love one another. You see, the biblical thing to do if somebody wounds you in the church is, You go to them and you do what you can to make things right. Even if it means taking brothers or sisters with you, and you do what you can to heal. If you've hurt somebody, the thing to do is go to them and make it right. That's how love grows, that's how love matures. Who's our example? Jesus. How many of the twelve forsook him on the night before the crucifixion? Every one of them. Every one of them. How many were lost? Only one who took his own life. All the rest were restored to fellowship because Jesus loved them and forgave them. He commissioned them and sent them out to preach the gospel in his name even though they had forsaken him. Peter denied him, not once, but three times. But Jesus' love endures forever. His grace knows no end. Light and love go together. Light and love go together. If we love people, and that's what we're commanded to do, we take great care to avoid sinning against them or causing them to stumble. We want to encourage them. We want to build them up. You all know John 3.16. You need to know 1 John 3.16 as well. It's easy. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Again, in my research preparing, I came across an illustration from the life of a married couple, Robertson McQuillican and Muriel Webendorfer interesting names. Huh? They met as students at Columbia Bible College. They got married in 1948 and for the next three decades they raised six children, served God together as a variety of posts, including 12 years as missionaries in Japan. In 1986 they returned to the United States and Robertson became the president of Columbia Bible College, now called Columbia International University. In 1981, Muriel was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. It was hard to believe because she was not up in the normal age range where that takes place. As the next few years went by, Robertson watched helplessly as his fun, creative, loving partner slowly faded away. Muriel knew she was having problems, but she never understood she had Alzheimer's. Robertson said, one thing about forgetting is that you forget that you forgot. So she never seemed to suffer too much from it, is what he said. There was one phrase she said often, however, I love you. Robertson learned much about love from Muriel and from God during those first few years of the disease. When he was away from her, she became distressed and would often walk the half mile to his office several times in a day to look for him. Once, when Robertson was helping take her shoes off, he discovered that her feet were bloody from walking. He was amazed by her love for him, and wondered if he loved God enough to be so driven to spend time with him. By 1990, Robertson knew he needed to decide about his career. The school needed him 100%. Muriel needed him 100%. In the end, Robertson says, the choice to step down from his position was an easy one for him to make. Perhaps the best explanation can be found in the letter he wrote to the Columbia Bible College constituency to explain his decision. Recently, it has become apparent that Muriel has continued most of the time, is contented most of the time she's with me, and almost none of the time I'm away from her. It's not just, just discontent, She's filled with fear, even terror. That she has lost me and always goes in search of me when I leave home. So it's clear to me that she needs me now full time. This decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as I told the students and faculty, as a man of my word, Integrity has something to do with it. But so does fairness. She had cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her the next 40 years, I would not be out of her debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic. But there's more. I love Muriel. She's a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, Occasional flashes of that wit that I used to relish. So her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration. I don't have to care for her. I get to. It's a high honor to care for so wonderful a person. Robertson relied on Jesus to give him the strength to meet his wife's needs week after week, month after after a month. When people asked him if he ever tired of caring for Muriel, he'd often say, no, I love to care for her. She's my precious. Yes, Muriel was his spouse, but he relied on Jesus to enable him to love her as Jesus loved him. And that's what the call is for us to love the brothers. One that says "brothers" it doesn't mean gender; it means the family of God. How can you be sure that you're a Christian? If you're Christian, you'll love others. Practically, that means if someone sinned against you, you forgive them. If you sinned against them, you ask for forgiveness. It means that you'll demonstrate your love even when it's costly. You give of your money, your time, your effort to demonstrate your love for others. Last note, may God help us to love others as Jesus loved us. May God help us to love others as Jesus loved us. Amen? Amen. Let's sing it one more time, power of your love.